And welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to you around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, men's and boys' issues, and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our special guest today is Sean Turnell. Sean is an honorary professor of economics at Macquarie Uni. In 2009, he published an influential book on Myanmar's financial system called Fiery Dragons, and this made him an internationally recognised expert and one of the lady, Aung San Suu Kyi's, most trusted advisers. He was arrested in February 2021 following a military coup and imprisoned for 650 days. Sean has released a book on his experiences called An Unlikely Prisoner, Sean, it's one year later, and uh, so not only welcome back to Australia, but welcome to Dads on the Air. Thank you so much, Phil. It's a great pleasure to be on Dads on the Air. Thank you. Well, you uh, you invested 30 years of your life in Myanmar trying to improve the lives of the, the people there. Then you spent those 650 days in some of Asia's worst jails. Has this changed how you look at the world? No, not really, mate. I think it's reinforced many positive aspects you know, some of the worst aspects of humanity. I also came across some of the best aspects too. Um, and um, as I write in the book, I think I've got some line that says that heroes emerged in the most unlikely places and times, something like that. Mm. Um, and, and that really stuck with me, right? Like so many people in desperate situations helped me immeasurably. And so, yeah, I think my faith in humanity is sort of... Um, I guess undergirded rather than undermined. I'm amazed that you've you've come through, you know, seemingly unscathed. You know, I'm sure there are some uh, mental uh, demons that you're still fighting, but uh, you know, physically, you know, after all that time on a terrible food, terrible conditions, everything else, it's. Uh, I think you you must have a strong constitution. I think. Well, I think so, mate. But I, I think also just um, coming back home. Um, I think we must never underestimate the extraordinary country we live in. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure you don't, and the listeners don't, but I guess it was a reminder of me, um, a reminder to me, rather. And so in the year I've gone back, you know, my wife and I have just spent our time just enjoying Sydney and the life more broadly in Australia. And um, I think that's, that's a really strong part of it. You know, the um, I think we, we Mopals have a great lifestyle here, um, the country is soundly run, you know, apart from the, you know, issues around the edges here and there. Um, and so I think that's been part of it as well. Myanmar was once seen as um, as joining the economic tigers of Asia. Do you think that's still a chance? No, unfortunately for the foreseeable future, I think it's not. Um, so Myanmar missed the whole um, story of the tiger economy, you know, that we've come to know about and took place in Vietnam and China and Taiwan and all those other countries. Uh, so part of the whole reason I was there was to try and help them hang on the back of that chain, if you like. And so we were involved in all sorts of economic policies trying to drive things forward. But after the military takeover, unfortunately, they've sort of unwound a lot of that. So mm. I'm, I'm fairly pessimistic on that front. For the short term anyway, even though I think in the longer term, 
Um, well, you are often associated with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi or the the lady. Uh, is she as saintly and uh, and attractive as she uh, certainly appears from a distance? Yeah, I, I think so. Mate. Um, I mean, she's a more controversial figure than she used to be, um, but she sort of knows that and, and accepts that. Um, well, one of the things that she's always been a pains to say is that look, I'm a politician, um, and I have to make the compromises that politicians do. And so, you know, she's often, yeah, again, trying to reassert that she's not a sort of saintly or otherworldly figure. Um, but, um, yeah, but, but I think, you know, the, the time I spent in the jail with her, I think reinforced to me that fundamentally uh, she's a person of immense uh, spirituality and morality, um, but at the same time someone who, from time to time, has a sort of role with political events. Mm. Um, well, going back to um, those early days of 2021 before the coup, did did you think in your heart of hearts there would be any repercussions for you in those early days of the coup after you made that post on Facebook? I think I was way too complacent, Bill, to be honest. Um, when the first coup first took place, uh, you know, I was worried about my me and my friends, but I wasn't really worried about myself. So, uh, but as it turned out, I should have been. I, I think I thought being Australian, being a fairly prominent uh, foreigner there, that, um, uh, that that was protecting, that hadn't turned out, of course, it didn't. Um, yeah, so I think there was a certain complacency on my part in the first instance, even though I, you know, I knew pretty much the nature of the regime. Uh, but, yeah, I, I really thought that I would probably be safe, maybe given a scare, a bit of a fright, uh, but then booted out of the country and... Mm. and uh, then go on with things. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's. I was a bit surprised to read, you know, they sent two dozen soldiers and they had manacles and armed police and convoys. And I mean, you must have seen as been seen as a, a, a pretty dangerous customer. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, and this is the, the irony of it. I mean, the people who met me, um, you know, I'm about just a little bit over five foot tall and about 55 kilos. And, you know, I was 57 at the time and there's no way of any sort of, um, you know, phys- I'm not physically uh, prominent in any way. <laughs> so, uh, that, yes, overkill, I think, might describe the way they approach me. Well, uh, of course, when you arrived at the uh, at the jail, or maybe before, but uh, you you had your passport and you, and you had a visa in your passport, but there was just one problem that the uh, I think you say the government officials that gave you the visa were in the next cells. So that's right, that's right. So normally, of course, a visa that that said I was there to help the government and help the country and so on, that that would be more than enough. But in this case, of course. That particular government was actually in the jail cells. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so it really didn't have much currency at all. And 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 you were an unusual prisoner. Let's face it. I mean, you describe how when uh, you were uh, escorted, shall we say, out of the um, out of your hotel, the, the hotel staff lined all the driveway for you. So the, the... they did. It was yeah, yet another you know very characteristic act of courage. I think of the people of Myanmar. They all just come out. Uh, and they gave the three-fingered salute, which is the sign in many countries in Southeast Asia, actually, for democracy and freedom and things like that. And then uh, when you got the rude shock when you uh, arrived at that prison that you'd flown over many times, I'm sure, on your various trips to Myanmar. But um, 
you talk about the cell and um, perhaps you could describe, would you describe the cell for us and perhaps who was there with you? Sure. So the, the initial cell uh, was just a very tiny box of a room without any uh, windows except for a tiny slit window that the police could be observed, could observe me in. Um, but yeah, like a room within a room it was a horrible little place about the size of a shipping can- container, one of those small shipping containers. So I was kept in that for two months. Uh, then I was taken into Insane Prison itself, which of course is ex- the extraordinarily named Insane yeah. Prison. Yeah. Held there for many more months uh, with other political prisoners, which uh, was a substantial improvement because I was with other people. But Insane Prison, built by the Brits back in the 19th century, horrible sort of medieval dungeon sort of place. But yeah, so physical conditions sort of went down that little bit further. But I had lots of people around me. No one actually in your cell at any time. That's because of the the risk of contamination. I understand. That's right, mate. So I think all along, Myanmar's military junta—they're always terrified of the people of Myanmar finding out about the world outside and just how bad they've been governing the place. So mm. yeah, always anxious to keep me away from other Burmese political prisoners. But uh, yes, uh, you, you talk about there was one other uh, creature at least in your in your cell, which gives most people the horrors. You a, a, a rat the size of a cat, I think you describe it. Absolutely. Well, and and I know that you know a little things like fishermen and fish. I know these things are exaggerated, but yeah, this thing was enormous, and it was a really ugly looking rat. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah, it's scuttling around. I remember actually when I soon after seeing it, I was told that I I must sleep. I thought, bloody hell, how am I going to sleep with that? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, nonetheless, I had to try to. <laughs> was there any uh, any real physical maltreatment from the guards when you were in there? There was a little bit, mate. Um, I, I got it much better, if, if one can use that expression, than my Myanmar colleagues. But, yeah, a little bit of just sort of roughing up. I was sort of whacked around the head a couple of times. And one, one time a guy, one of the guards, tried to... It gave me a fright, I think, by holding a cigarette lighter at the back of my head. This thing in my hair. But, um, but, yeah, a couple of those incidents, uh, I, I was treated better than my little Mark colleagues, who, who really got the full measure of torture, you know, having electrodes attached to them, very severely beaten and so on. So I, mm. I didn't have, have that. But, yeah, certainly a rough handling. Well, we're speaking today with uh, Professor Sean Turnell, uh, who is the author of a new book called An Unlikely Prisoner. Sean, we've reached the uh, part of the show where we ask our guests if they'd like to pick a song. Have you got one for us? I sure do. Um, it's the theme from the, I think it was the 1968 or 69 movie, The Battle of Britain. And um, this song, this theme song, I think many people will know, is incredibly stirring. And I used to think of this as the very worst moment, uh, first going into the prison. Uh, waiting to hear my sentence, I would just think of this and and think about those young Spitfire pilots and and all that they had at stake for the survivor of, uh, survival of civilization. And I thought, well, look, you know, if those people did it, let me try and sum it up that as much as I could. And I, you know, like many people my age, I grew up on all that stuff, mm-hmm. Douglas Barter and you know the whole legends of, of flying aces in World War Two and so on. So yeah, that's that's the song and it. And, me every time I hear it. 
And that was the the theme song from the soundtrack of the Battle of Britain, as specially chosen for us today by our guest, Professor Sean Turnell. And if that doesn't get you stirred up, I don't think anything will. Sean, uh, you were in this cell. You had you had the lights on for 24 hours a day. How did you manage to keep together mentally and physically over such a long time? So I think that the basic thing was physical activity. Um, and I think this reaches just into the sort of basic part of our brain that I think whenever sort of sentient thinking beings uh, are in prison, the first thing you want to do is move and to pace. And so I would do that. I would pace from one end of the cell to the other and I would count. And I think, I, apart from anything else, it gave me something to do and stopped me thinking about my predicament. So in some ways it's a sort of strategy to not think. Um, because I was also in an environment where thinking actually didn't help me because mm. the whole story was completely irrational. So it's not like I could sort of argue my way out of it. In fact, that, that turned out to be a problem. I, I did try to do that. So, yeah, so, so that was the first strategy. Then other strategies later came in. I was able to get books delivered to me. Uh, I was able to be in contact a little bit with the Australian Embassy and so on. So some of those strategies became important later on. Was it ever so bad that you actually thought of suicide in that situation? I did, mate. I, uh, unfortunate to say, um, there were moments there, particularly when I was in that box that we spoke about, where um, you know things were just awful. I could hear people being tortured outside. Mm. I, I was worried that that was going to happen to me. Um, things were lawless. The the country was rapidly descending in conflict and. I could hear explosions and getting shots outside, and I, I just thought, you know, I'm not going to get out of this. Um, and uh, yeah, so there were moments of it. Um, I should say that, the, well, there's a couple of things that stopped me. I thought I can't do that to my wife and daughter and family and friends and all those rooting for me. Um, so that that was probably most important. But there are also some practical things that there was nothing actually to do it with. Uh, this this was an empty box, you know, and and there was nothing to, yeah, to sort of hang myself with or anything like that. But, but yeah, I, I don't think I would have done it anyway, to be honest, because, again, that sort of overwhelming responsibility I felt for my uh, wife and family particularly that, um, yeah, so I, I pushed the idea down. Yeah. Um, were there any ways that you could assert any control, um, you know, over your situation with the, um, you know, with the guards, say? A little bit, mate. One strategy which um, I'm not especially proud of saying because it sort of runs against modern thinking on these things, but um, I was very careful like, to always just speak English to the guards and, in a sense, to put them on the back foot. Um, and so I'm not particularly proud of it because obviously I'm in a different country and all that, but when you're in that sort of situation, you can look for anything you can to sort of redress the power imbalance. So... Um, so by talking then, if they wanted to order me around to use English, it sort of just gave me that's a tiny little power, a bit of power back, you know, because in a country like Myanmar, English is seen very much as the language of modernity and prosperity and freedom and all that. And so by forcing them in a sense to use that, I was sort of pulling them a little bit back onto my side. Well, you know, I, I imagine you were always going to be treated a bit differently. I mean, you know, being a Westerner for for a start, but uh, even before your arrest, you were you were heading towards being something of a, a rock star economist. I understand. You know, you had thousands of people coming to hear you talk, and you you must have been very well known in Myanmar. Oh, 
I was, right? And I think that, again, goes to the heart of, of uh, you know, Paul Myanmar's history because it had been isolated by the military for decades, you know, and so whenever there was any sort of attention or international help, you know, you would get a really positive response. And, and I think it also highlights just the incredible hunger in Myanmar for change. Um, the, the young people of that country, but all, all the people, but especially the young people, are so impressive. Um, and, you know, it was just a joy to work with them. And I think this is why, um, you know, it just sort of adds an extra element of tragedy to the coup and what the military is doing there, because, you know, this, this is a country with just so much potential and just squandered decade after decade. Look, uh, uh, something I've always been a bit unclear on, is the country called Myanmar or Burma? Great question, eh? Um, <laughs> in Burmese, it's actually the same name, uh, where Burma it sort of comes from Burmar, and it sort of sounds... It's how the British thought people were responding. Um, so it doesn't really matter which one is used. Uh, it, this used to be a very controversial issue, where people who were pro-freedom and pro Aung San Suu Kyi would use the old name of Burma, and the military would use Myanmar. Then when uh, Suu Kyi came into office in 2016, she sort of said, look, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, whatever name is fine, it's all got the same roots anyway. So people these days use it pretty much interchangeably. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it used to be very politically, but, but these days either either is usable. Yeah, it's interesting because the the Burmese name, you know, sort of hung around a bit, even though it probably is a reminder of colonial days. But um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I have noticed it seems a bit interchangeable. But... Yeah, it's interesting just on that too. Well, the whole colonial overhang, I think, in Burma is much uh, is uh, much less brought than it is in many other countries. And in fact, many of the Burmese people I know actually very often say things like, "Oh, gee, things were so much better when." Uh, we were part of the British Empire. So mm. just, to, just to, I'm, I'm not supporting that necessarily, but just to make that point that, mm. that um, the legacy of empire is much less negative to most people in Myanmar than the legacy of the military regimes in Kamakul. Now, you, you mentioned a little earlier about, uh, you know, keeping your sanity and how um, you, you would ask for books. and uh, But there was a little bit of resistance. I like the story where the guard said, but he already has a book. <laughs> illustrated so much that, that for the prison guards, the, the idea that a book was just a commodity, you know, and, and you only really needed one, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, but I had an incredible hunger for books, and luckily I had my wife and by the Australian Embassy and so on to supply me with other books. And Sean, you, you tell a story against yourself, which, uh, which I liked, which was that... Um, I mean, there must have been some quite a bit of interaction with the guards, but I understand you showed the guard a photo of your wife, Ha. Um, is that how you pronounce it, Ha? That's right, mate. Ha. And, uh, and the guard's response was, um, she's with him? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, I mean, I mentioned again, you know, I'm a relatively short, building guy. Uh, and my wife, uh, who is, was born in Vietnam, and like many women in Vietnam, Looks about 20 years younger than yep. she is, uh, and incredibly beautiful. And I think objectively, I can say that rather than just objectively. And um, yeah, so I think the prison guard looked at that and thought, "Oh my God, <laughs> really? She's with him?" So my, my esteem in their eyes, I could actually almost visibly see the respect they had for me rising as a consequence. <laughs> Yeah, and then against that, you know, you talk about 
the, the silly bureaucracy. I mean, we have enough of that here, but uh, it, it takes it up to a new level. You, you mentioned about the uh, the chair with no armrests and that they insisted on, and and I think they told you at one stage to stop whistling. It's uh, that's I, I, right, mate. I mean, this is a, not only a military state, there's sort of license raj on top of it. So. Yeah, just any number of absurdities uh, would, would come my way. Uh, I'd asked for a plastic chair, and they finally agreed after months of sort of negotiation. Um, and uh, they said, you couldn't have any arms, armrests. And you know, I had no idea why that was the case. <laughs> but um, uh, but then when it finally did arrive, it was absurdity, wasn't it? It had armrests. <laughs> arm yeah, just, just ridiculous, mm. mate. And then, yeah, an injunction to stop whistling. Uh, that this prison was not for people to whistle in. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm an in, uh, unstoppable whistler, so it didn't really make any difference. <laughs> well, against all, all that, um, it, it must have been really difficult to deal with when you got that false alarm on your release. I mean, not only you, but your wife, your family, everyone must have uh, must have been lifted and then dropped like a sack of potatoes. It must have been very difficult to deal with. It was one of the more bizarre moments, yeah, when about a year in, uh, President Hun Sen of Cambodia announced to the world that I'd been released, which of course was no such thing, but I'll never forget the guard coming up and saying to me, oh, Sean, apparently you're free. And I said, well, apparently I'm not. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was a, a very strange, surreal and disappointing moment. Did you think at that stage that you would ever be released or were you sort of resigning yourself to the rest of your life in a Myanmar prison? At that point, I was still hopeful, mate, and as time went on, uh, my hopes were really receding. Um, so, you know, especially just towards the end, I think that, that was when my hopes hit rock bottom. So uh, the release when it happened was a complete surprise and, uh, you know, a very joyous surprise, obviously, but... Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think over time, mate, my, uh, my expectations of being released just went down and down. So you, you finally got that news on the 17th of November 2022. It, as you say, it just came out of the blue where a, a guard came and said, you know, you're going, pack up your things, you know. How did you feel when you, you suddenly found you had 10 minutes to get out of your, your home for 650 days? The truth of it was, mate, this day that I'd waited nearly two years for, I didn't know what to do. I, I was sort of dumbstruck. And I said to him, look, please tell me you're not kidding. That, that was the first thing I said. But, um, yeah, but then I didn't know what to do. I, I was sort of looked around and I thought, do I pack stuff or not? And uh, in the end, I just walked out basically with nothing. Oh, well, and you walked. That was the main thing. But uh, now then you, you said you were pardoned by the, uh, the junta, but is that pardon now revoked? It is, yeah. So, so the junta are not used to people disobeying them. Um, and uh, so when I got back to all, all people speaking out, so when, when I got back to Australia and just reported, you know, the treatment, treatment of my uh, Burmese colleagues, and some, they were very annoyed um, and, um, and withdrew the pardon. So, um, yeah, an extraordinary thing. I'm, I'm not quite sure what they expected me to say. Mm. But, yeah, what I did say just discombobulated them completely. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that gives me some concern because I, I think you mentioned such a thing as a red notice. I think Peter Grest has got a similar thing. So that means That's that right. uh, some countries you you, uh, you you really take a risk on going into now, wouldn't you? That, that's right, Bill. It's 
really extraordinary, actually, about how, you know, I, I used to think things like Interpol and the like were only about catching international narcotics traffickers and things like that. Mm. Um, but they're actually used against all sorts of dissidents, against, you know, some really bad regimes. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really disappointing thing. That might be there for a while until uh, the day comes when the military junta is um, get back to, getting back to being a military and not a government, I hope. But, uh... That's right, mate. And certainly recent developments, literally in the last few days, sort of suggest that the regime might be starting to fail now. Mm. So, um, yeah, so we're very hopeful just at this moment. Look, on that ho- hopeful note, uh, we've, we've unfortunately run out of time today, but uh, I, I strongly recommend... Um, People have a look at this new book by our guest, Sean Turnell. It's called An Unlikely Prisoner, and uh, it, it's full of the most amazing stories. And uh, you, you'll have a lot of admiration for our, our guest when you finish reading this book, I promise you. So, uh, it, it, look, it just reminds me, uh, Sean, I know that lots and lots of people were hoping to talk to you, and we are very grateful that you chose uh, Dads on the Air. So thank you very much for being a guest. Thank you so much, Bill. And, and, and if I could use your platform, mate, just to thank uh, all the listeners, because people from Australia, I mean, I've mentioned the Burmese people supporting me, but it's people of Australia as well, and I knew that throughout. Um, and I'm, yeah, just eternally grateful. Well, uh, don't forget, uh, we'd love to hear from our listeners. If you've got any comment on this show or any of our shows, uh, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, send us an email, and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to your favourite podcast app or our website, dadsontheair.com.au, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. (laughs) 